Our whole philosophy is built on the idea that in order for people to learn, they have to try things. When you try things, you will inevitably fail. When you fail, you learn a lot. And so you want to celebrate folks when they fail because that's the only way that they're really going to innovate, learn, and grow is if they're willing to take the chance and fail. You know, if you reprimand people or otherwise punish them for failing, then they won't want to take the chance and they won't learn and your company will stagnate its growth. Well, we want exactly the opposite. From the Insight Studio, this is Found in the Rockies, a podcast about the startup ecosystem in the Rocky Mountain region. The founders, funders, and contributors, and the stories of what they're building. I'm Stephanie, and on today's show, I'm chatting with Jeremy Brown of Front Street Capital on how they invest in private markets in order to gain key learnings on how to better invest in public markets. Hey y'all, a quick note. This is the last episode of season one of Found in the Rockies. We'll be taking a break over the summer, but we'll return in the fall. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for making this a great first season. And I look forward to bringing you new episodes in September. Front Street Capital is an investment firm that does three things. The first thing that we do and the first thing that that the firm has done since its inception is investment accounts for clients in almost all in equities, publicly traded equities, meaning stocks that are traded on the stock market. The second thing that Front Street does is a little bit newer, about 10 years old. 10 years ago, Front Street started its own mutual fund which invests in equities, the exact same equities using the exact same strategy. Again, you know, publicly traded securities. And that's a little different because when Front Street kind of was first going, it had a lot of clients, a lot of relationships, but it gained more and more clients, more and more relationships. And after several hundred different relationships, it became a little bit hard to manage. And I'm sure we can talk about kind of our philosophy of management and kind of what we do and what we look for. But there's three people at Front Street and they were not able to manage, you know, hundreds and hundreds of accounts. That just was a strain. So they decided to open a mutual fund. Front Street acts as the manager of the mutual fund. And so it's really just one relationship, the manager and the fund. And anytime they need to buy a company, they just buy that company in one account, the fund account. And, you know, people now that want to use our program usually invest through the fund. They buy shares of the mutual fund. That's the second thing that we do. And we get paid for both those. We get paid a management fee to manage accounts. We get paid a management fee to manage the mutual fund. And I would guess that we probably have somewhere in the neighborhood of three or 400 private accounts that we still manage. And... Ever since the fund started, we have not really opened new accounts. Everyone that uses our program goes into the fund. And my guess is we probably have several thousand investors in the fund. And again, that's one account that we manage, although we know a lot of those investors. So we, you know, have relationships with different folks, but we don't know them all. In fact, we probably only know a fraction of them because the fund is traded on a variety of different platforms so people can invest in it whenever they want and we won't even know about it. And then and then our last 
and kind of most recent part of our business is that we take those management fees that we receive and we use those fees that are now Front Street Capital money. We invest that money, our own money, in private companies and we call those private company investments our Gemba activities because we really are using those investments to get our hands dirty to learn about the management styles and philosophies that we use to invest in the and the criteria that we use to invest in the publicly traded companies for our clients. So it's really our third business is really kind of our learning business where we're learning how to be better and better at what we do in our first two. That's so unique. I and I I recognize how unique that is because I've been around you a long time and and what you all are doing, but I just want to pause and like unpack what you just said a little bit. So people know Front Street has made some investments in startups or businesses, more businesses in and around Missoula. I think the interesting point is the way in which you describe the why behind it. The to learn about the management styles and philosophies in order to invest like through your mutual fund, which is, I think it's called Tarkio Fund, right? Yeah, that's right. The Tarkio Fund is the mutual fund. Yeah, so, you know, it's like you hear investor and you immediately, I immediately think, you know, return on investment. You're an investor because you're trying to make money. And I'm assuming that's important too, but can you just, Tell me more about this idea of learning and how does the return on investment play into that? Yeah, totally. So so at the moment, we have been doing our private investments, which again, we don't use investor money. We just use our own money, which is good because there has been no return on investment yet. <laughs> uh, we started this program about maybe four years ago, and we've invested in, I think, seven companies private companies, both in Missoula and in Bozeman, Montana. And a lot of it goes back to the philosophy that we use to invest in the publicly traded companies, which is we are looking not for a particular sector or a particular industry or a particular financial metric. We look at company management and company culture and how is the management structured and how is the culture fostered to produce markers that we think are predictive of long-term future growth and future financial performance. So it's all driven by a desire to have a financial return, but it is based on kind of the culture within the company and how does that culture predict that the company will do well in the long term. So we, and we, I'm sure we can talk about that in a minute, but our investment in these private companies allows us to go in and either work with the company or at least observe the company at really close range and be able to see a lot of the nuance and a lot of the problems and a lot of the headaches and a lot of the solutions and a lot of the different ideas and innovations that different companies use to try to foster these cultural principles and cultural markers that we think are predictive of success. Well, every company does it in a completely unique way. So the more that we can see kind of the nuts and bolts and the nitty gritty about how management teams do this, the better we are at being able to evaluate other companies when they're doing these same things. And of course, you know, the companies that we invest in on behalf of our clients are, 
you know, they're like Fortune 500, S&P 500, Russell 1000 companies. They're billion dollar companies sometimes. Often they're, you know, tens of billions or hundreds of billions of dollars in uh, enterprise value. The companies that we invest in Missoula are a far cry from that, but they still go through a lot of the same kinds of problems, a lot of the same decision-making, a lot of the same structures and problem-solving format and systems that, that are super helpful to us. When we, get, when we see someone like really trying to work through, let's say, a compensation system for a bonus, and they try it one way, and it has a certain effect that they didn't totally anticipate, and then so they try to tweak it a little and ha- try it another way. We can see that in real time and we can see those effects and it helps us, you know, have a little more nuance when we evaluate, let's say, bonus systems or compensation systems for, you know, $1.5 billion company. Oh, that's so interesting. I love how you all brought these two worlds together and how you're thinking about this. And so just to make sure I'm tracking and audiences hearing this too, you all really believe in culture as a driving force behind the success of a company in those systems and processes that build companies. And so in the Tarkio Fund, you're picking companies based on kind of their ability to build culture, to innovate, to have these systems and processes. And that's kind of what you're listening for when you're on these investor calls or reading up on a company. Am I right? Yeah. And that's pretty much what we do. That's literally our job all day, every day. We are researching, reviewing, looking at, you know, kind of monitoring the companies that we invest in and maybe some new companies that we think we might invest in in the future. It all comes back I think, Steph, to to the idea that when you invest in equities, when you invest in stocks on the stock market, the way that you get a return in it when you invest in stocks is that you invest in something now that will be worth more in the future, right? Just like any other investing. But in the stock market, things go up and down essentially at random in the short term. You don't know what's going to happen in the next two days. You don't know what's going to happen in the next two months. You barely know what's going to happen in the next two quarters. But we believe that you can predict with pretty darn good accuracy how companies or certain companies will fare over the next 10 years or 20 years or 25 or 30 years even. And we invest in companies for the long, long term. Our, our ideal is that we'll buy a company today and we will never sell it. It'll continue to get better and better and better over time and we will never have to sell. Of course, that doesn't always happen, but that's our ideal. And so we have kind of boiled down our investment principles or metrics into six different principles, five of which focus all, you know, heavily on culture. So essentially, like number one, Is the company long-term oriented? We're going to be investing in the company for as long as we possibly can if the company's management is not making decisions based on the long-term, meaning are they shortchanging their research and development, for instance, because they want to make this quarter's numbers? Or are they fine to like, okay, we don't care about this quarter's numbers. What we really care about is setting our company up for future development and future growth. 
Those are the kind of things that we're looking for, long-term versus short-term thinking. Another huge one for us is trust and integrity. If there's not trust and integrity within the company, between the company and its customers, between the company and its suppliers, between the company and its community, you know, like what city are they in? What state do they live in? Do, are they, you know, a multinational company? How do they, how do they interact with the the communities, the environment, you know, the global environment? How do they take into account, you know, kind of all the relationships that they have and all the constituencies that they have? Do they have a lot of trust? Is that all built on trust? We we have a couple of kind of employee centric principles that that we focus on, including, you know, does the company foster an environment of collaboration and try to drive out competition? Or on the flip side, is the company super competitive? Do they try to drive innovation by having people compete against each other for ideas and bonuses and promotions? Well, we like the companies, we think that the companies that foster environment of collaboration and drive out competition tend to do better in the long run. And we can identify them when they do, and we can identify those markers of future success. When everyone has an incentive to share information with everyone else because they don't need to hoard it, because they there's not some sort of scarcity of resources that they're each trying to you know, obtain, whether it's a bonus or a promotion or recognition or, you know, an employee that they want to bring from one division to another, then everyone has an incentive to share information and everyone can make better decisions. And when everyone makes better decisions, the company gets better and better over time. And then we we definitely take that one step further. If everyone can make good decisions, if everyone can be in an environment where they can make better and better decisions and they have all the information that they need to do it, then allow everyone to make decisions and encourage them to make decisions. We call this employee empowerment. Are people empowered to make decisions? Are they? Is every employee in the company able to affect the company's performance and affect the company's well-being by making decisions about how they go about their job and their workspace and their customer interactions and what have you. The employees at the, like, you might say the lowest level, we would say the frontline employees often have the most information. They have to make the most decisions on a day-to-day basis. They better be really good at making decisions and they can't get good unless you allow them and encourage them to do so. And then, of course, you know, all of this kind of is all for naught if the company doesn't have like one focus that everyone is pulling in the same direction. So one of our criteria and super important criteria is what's the purpose of the company beyond making money? We call it a noble purpose. Does the company have a noble purpose? And is the leadership of the company, whether it's the founder or the management team, or is the leadership of the company able to get everyone on board with that noble purpose. And when everyone is on board, everyone is energized. Everyone has a passion to do what it is they do to solve those problems, to help their customers accomplish whatever this noble purpose is. So if if that's all of the criteria that we are looking at for publicly traded companies, you can imagine that all of that stuff is done in a unique way in each company. No two companies are the same in how they accomplish all that. And so we might see some sort of scenario, some marker from from company B that's different than company A, and we might 
initially think, well, you know, we kind of don't like that because that doesn't look like this other company that we know that has done really well. And our job is to be able to look through the initial kind of, you know, what's the initial look? What's the initial marker look like? And be able to get at the nuance underneath. How does this company doing this cultural program or enacting this bonus system or, you know, following this particular purpose, how is that going to predict that company's success? Well, it's much easier for us to do that. We get better at it and better at it when we actually are in doing the same thing with our private companies. And we can, you know, we can see, well, Maybe this bonus system isn't the best ideally, but in this particular situation, it's the best we could do because there are all these other factors that we wouldn't have understood had we not been involved with helping them put together that system in the first place. Okay, this is so interesting. Where did this come from? Like, where did these principles come from and how long have you been acting on them? Yeah, so so I, I am new to the game. I'll tell you the kind of the history of the company. So Russ Piazza and Michelle Blood are the founders of Front Street Capital. Russ and Michelle have been investing in companies that use these sort of principles to create continuous improvement and learning organizations. They've been doing that for over 35 years. And they, the, where that came from was Russ was, you know, just kind of a typical investor that invested based on, you know, there's a war in Afghanistan or there's, you know, back then it was even before Afghanistan, but, you know, there's a, you know, there's a pipeline break in Alaska or there's a new election in Venezuela. And, oh no, that means that, you know, I better buy this sector or sell this sector. That's the kind of investing Russ was trying to do. And I mean, it's impossible to predict those things. It's impossible to understand macroeconomic and geopolitical factors when you're trying to predict what they're going to do to stock prices for a variety of reasons, which we can get into if you want. That's probably not the most interesting part of it. But he struck up a relationship with a very famous investor named Phil Fisher. Phil Fisher had this kind of revolutionary idea in the, I want to say, late 60s and 70s. Maybe it was even into the early 80s about investing in companies that were really high quality companies and then ignoring all the noise and let the company that you know is high quality get through all of those kind of ups and downs on their own and just ride the company forever. So no short-term investing, no buying and selling, no market timing. It's all about finding great companies and sticking with them. And then the idea is you don't have to worry about predicting what a ship stuck in the Suez Canal is going to do to world trade and how that might affect steel prices. But instead, all you have to do is find a way to figure out which companies are really great and how can you predict whether a company is going to be great. And the company will sort out all that geopolitical macroeconomic stuff. So Russ had a relationship with Phil Fisher, kind of a mentor-mentee relationship, and was introduced by Phil to the idea of Kaizen, which is the Japanese word for continual improvement, because at the time in the mid 80s, the Japanese manufacturing process was like taking over the world. And what, how were they able to make better quality products 
at cheaper prices for consumers. And that was a conundrum that the rest of the world hadn't been able to figure out. And it came down to this idea that if you focus on the process of continually trying to make improvements in quality, oftentimes that means almost always that means that your employees have to help in that improvement process. It's not a top-down dictate of we're going to use this process and if you don't follow it, you're going to get fired. It's the idea that we're going to use this process, but it's up to every single employee to figure out how to make that process better. And then let's figure out a system to continually improve that process so we're always getting more efficient and at the same time, always providing a better and better product for our customers. So that idea kind of was the spark of this philosophy that you could invest in companies that enable this process to occur. And so we've, you know, just like our companies, we have modified and morphed this process over time and iterated and made improvements. And we constantly are still trying to figure out how to improve our process. You know, do we add criteria? How do we interpret our criteria? How do we understand the lens through which we're looking at our criteria and the criteria is grown and evolved over time. And Russ and his and and Michelle and their firm have have done like quite well over a long period of time using that criteria. I was added to the mix because actually Russ and I met through soccer. I coached his son's soccer team and he was my team manager and we would drive all over Montana for hours and hours at a time and he would explain all this stuff to me. And I being a lawyer, a corporate lawyer that worked with investors and companies that received investment, I would you know, try to shoot holes in his thesis and try to understand it and try to try to get all the nuance. And I learned it so well that I started investing with Russ. And then a couple of years later, he hired me to do a couple of corporate deals when he when he bought his first private companies. I was the lawyer on those deals. And then and then he asked me to come work for him about five years ago. So I've been involved for almost six years ago now. I've been involved for six years and I'm the one that kind of is in charge is probably not the right word, but definitely the one that is taking the laboring ore on on these private companies and helping kind of install or at least observe their methods or install our method into these management teams. Wow. I can't believe it's almost been six years. I'm like so caught off guard by that. I literally felt like it was maybe last year that you made that transition and remembering that transition. You have a really interesting background to be in this spot now. Like like you just mentioned, you were doing a lot of like M&A deals, right? When you were a lawyer. And so you kind of switched over to, you know, you had a background in startups, but now you are going to be investing in companies, but not from the lens that most investors would, right? Like a VC maybe is not going to align very well with your guys' philosophy of holding for a long time, really looking for those patterns. Just, I'm really curious, like, what have you learned in these last six years or what surprised you? Yeah, totally. So my background was venture capital. I kind of revolved around the venture capital ecosystem, representing investors in venture capital funds, representing some venture capital funds themselves, representing lots of companies in which venture capital was investing, and then representing the M&A deals at the end where everyone cashed out. So certainly my background was kind of this idea about investing 
that, you know, that you invest for what you would call a long period of time, three to five to seven years in a company and you would help it grow. And then you would get out and, you know, and get a return of your capital and hopefully some profit, which, by the way, is a long period of time when you look at how normal folks invest. Like most investing is very short term. I'm going to invest in a fund or a stock that I think is going to do well over the next couple you know, weeks or quarters or, you know, with some people, with a lot of people, it's, you know, I might invest in, you know, GameStop and try <laughs> to get out tomorrow. So, right. so, you know, three to five years is a long investment period, but it is an investment period that has an exit strategy. That exit strategy is we need to grow and then we need to get out. Well, that's, that is not what we do at Front Street. We invest in companies with the idea that their best years are always ahead of them because they are continually improving. Whatever they did this year, they'll be better at it next year. And, you know, whether it's empowering employees and retaining employees, whether it's creating cost-saving measures by eliminating a bunch of wasteful activities, whether it's delighting customers or gaining market share, we think that there's always something better in the future. So for us, the best time to own a company is in the future. And if that changes, if we're constantly, I mean, my day-to-day job is reading listening and traveling. That's what I do on a day-to-day basis to to constantly learn about companies and about theories that these companies are using to get better and better. And so if our companies start to slip and they start to do things that don't really track with our criteria for investment, then we'll get out. Otherwise, we'll try to stay in as long as we possibly can. And that's the difference. And that's what I've, you know, certainly bringing my legal and investment you know, investment law background to Front Street has been super helpful, but I've definitely had to make a total mind shift in terms of we never want to get out of these things. We want to, we're looking for things that we can partner with forever. So if you don't get out of them, how do you get your return? Yeah. So the way that a mutual, let's take the mutual fund for a second and I'll tell you about kind of how we do the accounts. So the way that a mutual fund works is I'm, I invest in our mutual fund. I put in some number of dollars to buy shares of the mutual fund at a certain price. The price is determined by what's the value of the mutual fund at the end of the day that day. So let's say today is Monday, the June 7th. I'm going to buy some shares of Tarkio Fund. They're trading around $30 per share today, but we don't know exactly what they're going to be by the end of the day. So let's say I put in $90 and at the end of the day, lo and behold, Tarkio Fund is worth $30 a share because you add up all the shares of stock that Tarkio Fund owns, divide it by the number of shares outstanding, it's worth $30. Then they take my $90, add it to the bank account for Tarkio Fund, and they give me three new shares of Tarkio Fund, newly issued shares. So shares are still worth $30. Tomorrow, stocks might go up, stocks might go down. In fact, almost certainly some will go up and some will go down. And depending on what the value of those stocks are at the end of the day tomorrow, we have a new share price for Tarkio Fund. If I bought in at 30 and tomorrow things go up to 31, let's say, and then I sell my shares tomorrow, 
then I'll make a dollar of profit on my share. So investors themselves can get in and out of Tarkio at any time. We tend to prefer investors that want to stay in for a long period of time. Our philosophy is investing for the long term is what we're here to do. That's how we help our clients. But people can get out. Or maybe I'll buy 200 shares of Tarkio Fund and I'll keep them until retirement. But along the way, I might need, you know, a new pair of skis. So I'll sell a couple shares and I'll be able to cash out with the new skis. But if I keep my money in Tarkio forever until I retire or past retirement or even till I die, those shares keep getting greater and greater in value, hopefully, because the price of those stocks continue to go up and stock prices go up over long periods of time because the companies get better and they their earnings increase and people are willing to buy those shares of stock for more. So the price goes up. So the value of my shares of Tarkio keep going up and up. In our private accounts where there isn't a fund, but instead, let's say you invested money in a private account and now you have in your account, you have shares of stock. Well, those shares of stock hopefully are get appreciating over time and getting more and more valuable. And we have a ton of clients that are retirees. And so they need some sort of income. Maybe it's a monthly income or maybe it's twice a month or maybe it's only you know once a quarter. But every month, let's say, we'll sell a couple of shares of some of their stocks, whichever ones of their stocks are at a high you know, a high price on that particular day because stocks go up and down all the time. So if they need, you know, $400 to pay their, you know, their mortgage that month, or maybe they need $2,000 or $10,000 or $20,000, whatever it is to fund their lifestyle, we'll sell a little bit every month of what they have and the rest keeps growing over time. And, and they're able to get their income through the sale of a little bit at a time. Okay, cool. And then what about private? So I know you you already mentioned there has been no return yet. Is there still an expectation in any way of these companies to have a return? Do you have a timeline or you guys really are just good learning along the way? And Yeah, so number one, we really are doing the learning. And if one or more of these companies doesn't end up making money over time, that's not ideal, but it's good learning for us. And it's worth it because you know, most of our activity is on the publicly traded companies, you know, are that's our bread and butter. That's our, the engine that makes Front Street go in the first place. But that said, the reason that we're investing in these companies is because we think that they will get better and improve and make money over time. And when they do, we'll be entitled to a share of those earnings. And when we receive those earnings, we can either choose to keep them in the companies and try to continue to grow and improve, Or if we think we can grow and improve the companies without using all that cash, then we can take the cash. Maybe we invest in another company. So over time, not only will each company improve and get better and grow their earnings, but to the extent that we decide to take earnings out of those companies, we can then buy more companies and do the same exact process and get them on a cycle of growth. So it's essentially a double compounding. Compounding is our favorite word in our in our business. And if you can compound each company by improving that company and improving their processes and by using the cash that the company makes each year to make it more cash in future years, 
that's great. And if you can then buy more companies and do this with more companies with the excess cash that we make, then we can just add more and more companies to that engine and we can be a, just a huge compounding machine. We don't know where this is going to go. We don't have any end goals. In fact, the companies that we invest in tend not to have end goals. They tend to focus more on process than they do on, on you know, particular numbers goals. And that's kind of where we are. But, you know, I don't know if we're going to own... 10 companies or 200 companies in 20 years, but we'll continue to do this process because we think it really accelerates our learning and compounds our learning. And o- over time, it will make us money as well. I love that. So what was on my mind when you say this is to so many people, you sound like an ideal investor. Like who doesn't want an investor who is just really hoping to learn? So you know, what kind of companies are a good fit for you all or that you can find that you could invest in? Because like my gut is, is that you probably aren't making investments in technology because that kind of requires a different path or maybe not, maybe I'm wrong. And that you're probably more in small businesses or right. investing so, in. Yeah, so first and foremost, the culture has to be right for what we're trying to do. If it's a culture where, so we invest our client money on in publicly traded companies. We invest our own money in private companies. We also invest some of our own money in publicly traded companies. When we invest in publicly traded companies, those often are companies that have lots of touch points with customers and maybe manufacturing, suppliers, but lots of touch points and decision points that are made by frontline workers. Maybe it's a manufacturing company that has a lot of workers on the manufacturing line. Maybe it's a it's a services company that has a lot of clients that are served by individuals within the company. Anytime where you have a lot of frontline workers making lots of decisions and able to make lots of decisions, that's a company that's ripe for continual improvement in our system, within our framework. And we typically can evaluate those companies fairly easily and well and accurately. So we do have a lot of manufacturing companies in our portfolio. We have a lot of services, but not all. We have some technology companies because those technology companies foster the same kind of culture and do cool things that make us feel very confident in their ability to grow. It's the same thing when we invest in private companies, when we invest our own money at a much smaller scale. You know, we have companies that have a lot of, let's say, customer touch points or a lot of processes that can be improved by the employees that are doing those processes over time. They have to have employees. That's one thing that we found. We've invested in a couple kind of startup technology companies because we knew that the founders were really cool and had really awesome ideas about culture, but they didn't have many employees or any employees to implement those ideas yet. So we haven't gotten as much learning and we can't bring as much to the table in terms of our own advice and our own experiences. A lot of what we do is we connect our private company managers or our private company employees with our public companies. We'll bring our, you know, we'll bring managers of our private companies on field trips with us when we go out and visit companies in Texas or Pennsylvania or, you know, Salt Lake City or California. And they get a bunch of learning and there's a bunch of good cross collaboration that occurs. And then of course we just sit in the room and try to soak up as much as we can and learn as much as we possibly can. But we can't really do that in an effective way with a company that doesn't have an employee. So that's kind of the first thing. Employees are necessary. Other than that, 
We're fairly agnostic, Steph. I mean, we have done investment rounds with venture capital type investors, either angel investors or venture capital. And I, I think that we will probably not do that as much going forward because just because the idea in those companies is to grow and that, you know, to scale, to grow or scale or both and then exit. And for us, that's really not the idea. The idea is create this awesome culture, let it compound on itself over time and grow the business over time with no intention of exit. That's the best way for us to get our return. That's the best way that we can add value. And that's the only way that we feel like we can predict with really high degrees of accuracy. Otherwise, we're just like, you know, it feels like kind of rolling the dice. Like, yeah, this technology company might be a really high growth company, but how do we really know? We don't have any advantage. You know, we'll let the VCs that do have advantage in that area, we'll let them do their thing and we'll kind of stay clear of that. And we'll do what we know. We'll stay within our circle of competence. Right. Well, and sometimes it seems like such an afterthought anymore, but some of these companies do in fact go on to IPO and yeah. become <laughs> options for Tarkio. Totally. And, <laughs> and you're totally right about that. We, in our past, we've actually, we don't really participate in IPOs per se, but we have definitely followed companies, visited companies, been, you know, close with cultures and management of companies that have gone from private company to public company. And then we just wait around until we can get the company at a, you know, at a good price. You know, the best thing about publicly traded companies is that every single day the price goes up and down. You don't have to buy them when they're high. You can totally buy them when they're low. And if you know the company inside and out, and if you're very confident about the work that you've done on this quality company, you can wait until the market wants to crush it for some reason. Maybe it's a reason like they didn't hit their quarterly numbers because they refused to lay off a bunch of people during COVID. And you know that's the exact thing that you wanted to see from them. So the stock price gets crushed. You can come in and buy a ton of stock for not much money and use that to, you know, to support your returns for the next five years. It's a phenomenal way of doing it. And, you know, knowing the companies before the IPO is, is a great way to get the jump on people. For sure. Well, I think this is also interesting. And I mean, I've got a front row seat being alongside you all the last few years and learning from you. So I look forward to continuing to learn from you all and the way you think. And me too, by the way, because (laughs) that's what I think we excel at is trying to learn, wanting to learn, trying to learn, hopefully doing a little learning. And it's, I agree, it's been like a wonderful thing for me to be able to watch you guys with your companies and, and you in particular stuff with your companies and be able to, you know, see some of the stuff you're doing. It's super helpful for our learning. Oh, good. Yes. As I fail at an amazing pace, I love to educate people along the way. And I think that's actually interesting about you all too, but I do want to transition us is the idea. I've always been really comfortable with failure because I'm private. We don't have investors, which gives me as an entrepreneur, a lot of room to fail openly. I I always say openly, like I don't have to like protect my failures. I get to openly fail from them. And I think that could be a really big win for other entrepreneurs, but it's so hard when you have investors. So watching you all being in those conversations alongside you with entrepreneurs you invested in, it's almost like you guys encourage 
not failure, but you encourage that space to fail and learn. A hundred percent. We, our whole philosophy is built on the idea that in order for people to learn, they have to try things. When you try things, you will inevitably fail. When you fail, you learn a lot. And so you want to celebrate folks when they fail because that's the only way that they're really going to innovate, learn, and grow is if they're willing to take the chance and fail. And if you know, if you reprimand people or otherwise punish them for failing, then they won't want to take the chance and they won't learn and your company will stagnate its growth. Well, we want exactly the opposite. We want companies that will grow and grow and compound over time. Failure is a vital part of that equation. So cool. Okay. I want to transition us into my rapid fire questions. Is that okay with you? Sure. Cool. All right. What are you looking forward to personally or professionally or both in the next 30 days? So that's a really good question. In the next, I don't, I, the questions might be fast. I don't know if my answers have to be really fast. The Maybe next not. 30 days <laughs> is going to be really great for us because COVID shutdown has done two things. On one hand, it is really highlighted companies that think long-term. When you're going through a very trying time and the chips are down, it's those decisions that you make at those periods of time that help us identify kind of these qualities in a company the most. So it's been really helpful in that way, but it's been really harmful for us because we have not been able to travel and actually see these companies in action. The thing that we do that's not only the most fun, but also probably the most helpful is that we go and visit all of these companies periodically slash often and actually like meet with them, see what the people on the ground are doing, see what the people on the manufacturing line, how are they solving problems, talking with management, seeing how they talk about their people and how they're trying to make their culture better. That's really what our value add is in terms of being investors. And uh, and we haven't been able to visit these companies for the last year. So in the next 30 days, we already have some visitations planned and that'll be not only the most fulfilling thing personally in this job because it's so fun to see these cool companies really at work and they're like so excited to have us there to show us all the cool stuff they're doing but but also being able to learn it'll really open that up awesome such a great answer this next one might be kind of hard for you because you're kind of a model citizen in work-life balance at least in the last five years if front street capital shut down for a week and you could do anything you want with your time what would you do i would say that i would probably take a week-long nap because (laughs) i feel like uh very busy but really i'm sure what i would do is i would coach soccer or help entrepreneurs essentially what i do for a living is what i do in my personal life as well it's i try to learn. How do I learn? I learn by doing a million different things. I learn by coaching kids in soccer. I learn about teamwork and I learn about motivation and I learn about, I'm even taking classes on it. Leadership. It's leadership in soccer has a lot of parallels with leadership in, and leadership in youth sports has a lot of parallels with leadership in a, in a big company. But I would probably just do the same thing I would always do. In fact, I have a good story. I don't know if you have time for it, but when I first joined Front Street, Russ has a one-week vacation that he takes every year. He takes one week of vacation. To he goes Sealy fishing. Lake. Yep, to, to, <laughs> to Swan Lake. Yep. Oh, Swan and he Lake. goes fishing on Swan Lake for a week. And his week vacation was like two weeks after I started working. And so he was gone for a week. So I thought it was great. I was going to have, you know, I was going to do a bunch of cool stuff before he got back. 
he was gone Monday and he was gone Tuesday and I got a bunch of good stuff and he came back Wednesday. And I was like, aren't you supposed to be on your vacation? He said, there's no place that I would rather be than in this office doing what I do. Like, that's what I love to do. So if Front Street was shut down, we would just do all the same thing that we normally do. We just do it from home, I'm sure. Oh, that's so funny. I think you might hit up the World Cup or something. Yeah, too. Would, yeah, yeah. If it was another weekend, <laughs> yeah, that would be good. I love it. Okay. Anything binge worthy in your life right now? Books, podcasts, shows, or if I know you as well as I think I do, are you learning a new language in your free time? Yeah, right. So my sister is married to a Russian guy. And so, so I have been trying to learn a little bit of Russian, although I, have taken a hiatus right now, so I need to get back into it. Yeah, I I read a ton. Actually, when I say read, I listen to Audible. I'm not a good reader. I'm a very good listener. So I listen to Audible when I read. And I read a bunch of business books, and I read a bunch of kind of world classic literature. So I'm reading right now a book by Hubert Jolie, the former CEO of Best Buy, which is a fantastic book called The Heart of part of business, I think. And uh, and then I'm also reading Anna Karenina, which is also like just a fantastic book. Awesome. That's, those are the, my binge. I binge on literature and business books. So cool. I know every time I meet with you and you have your earphones in, which you always do when you're waiting for meetings, I'm like, my first question is always like, what are you listening to right now? What are you totally. learning? You always have something. Who is someone that you are really looking up to in life right now? That is a great question. I mean, clearly the easy answer and obvious answer would be my colleague and boss, Russ Piazza, who has kind of outlined this entire framework for how to invest, but also how to treat other people and how to get the most out of people. I definitely look up to Russ in that way. But to be honest, I feel like I get a lot of great inspiration and modeling from almost everyone that I interact with because everyone does something really well or has a way of doing things that that's, you know, really successful that I can kind of take, you know, bits and pieces of what this person does or what this person does. At the moment, I'm very impressed with the the German manager for a English soccer team named Thomas Tuchel, the way that he manages and thinks about process versus results and how he uses that to get the best out of his team, I think is pretty cool. But it all kind of blends into the same philosophy for me. Awesome. What is a current challenge you're facing personally or professionally? Definitely time crunch. That one's easy for me to answer. I have too much on my plate. It spreads me thin. I love it all. So it's like impossible to give up any one activity that I do, whether it's helping entrepreneurs, whether it's coaching little kids soccer, whether it's coaching older kids soccer, whether it's traveling to different companies, but certainly time. I need to, I I definitely need to figure out a way to manage my time a little better and to kind of guard it a little more closely. And I'm putting in place some strategies to do that, which unfortunately means saying no to some things. Oh, I know. I hate that. I like saying yes to everything. Okay, Jeremy, thank you so, so much. To end, can you please tell our audience if they wanted to follow you or Front Street or Tarkio Fund, how do they find that online? Yeah, definitely. So so folks that want to come talk to us about investing, we actually make them go through this kind of 45 minute to an hour long process where we try to talk them out of it. It's called The Gauntlet. 
And, and, you know, we're always happy to share our gauntlet with anyone to try to talk them out of doing what it is we do. But our door is always open at Front Street. We love to have people come in and just chat about things. We're always trying to learn new things. So we love to have people come in. It's Front Street Capital. It's in Missoula. And, you know, you can just look us up online. Front Street Capital Management. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Found in the Rockies. You can find links in the show notes or go to foundintherockies.com to get transcripts, links, and contact information for today's guests. If you like what you heard and want more, please rate, review, and subscribe to get notified as our new episodes drop. See you next time.